John Lennon loved and adored America, and in particular New York City. He once said, "I regret profoundly that I was not an American and not born in Greenwich Village. It might be dying, and there might be a lot of dirt in the air you breathe, but this is where it's happening." Indeed, through the 1950s, 60s, and 70s. Greenwich Village was where it was happening. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. On my life, watching America. On my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 trouble in America. Another sun rises over fabulous and mighty Manhattan, where visitors by thousands seek out historical landmarks on its placid streets. People from out of town love its many quaint and secluded eating places. The big city's well-known hospitality to its guests is famous the world over. And as this is a story of New York, we naturally begin it in Greenwich Village. Coffee, no. Greenwich. <laughs> Where in the world do you go to do what you want to do? You do it on a cut slice of the Big Apple, where the license to be what you want to be is both costly and free. Just ask generations of disenfranchised New Yorkers that came before. Beginning of a great adventure. Fortunately, Dr. Cambrew McLeod has done just that for us. Beginning of a great adventure. Indeed, it was Lou Reed in Richmond that had a profound effect on my guest today, Kembrew McLeod, who has written the book *The Downtown Pop Underground*. The subtitle is *New York City and the Literary Punks, Renegade Artists, Do-It-Yourself Filmmakers, Mad Playwrights, and Rock and Roll Glitter Queens Who Revolutionized Culture*. And that is not an overstatement. Welcome to the program. Wonderful to have you, Mr. McLeod, Dr. McLeod. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Can I call you Kembrew? Oh, please. All right, that's terrific. It was Lou Reed, in a sense, who got you started on this uh, odyssey, if you will, of, of adventure, which took over three decades. And then you committed uh, 19 months to writing this, this uh, major work, enthralling work, I might add. A little bit before that, though, it was actually Debbie Harry uh, being on, of all things, The Muppets. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I was born in 1970, and... Just to give people a kind of timeline, uh, the original kind of punk explosion exploded out of New York City and then uh, London around 76, 77. So I was way too young to ever really be into that first wave of punk. But nevertheless, the idea of punk seeped into my consciousness through mass media, through, you know, really terrible TV shows like Quincy, which once had an infamous punk episode that, you know, <laughs> me watching as an adult, I was laughing out loud because it just completely with, with gets Jack, With Jack Klugman, right? With Jack yeah, Klugman, yeah, yeah I, re I remember it. And, and so even though I was too young to really, like, access DIY media, the idea of punk still seeped into my consciousness, and I still distinctly remember seeing Debbie Harry singing One Way or Another on The Muppet Show, probably around 1980. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, it's guest star time. 
You guys get, get off the stage. Get off the stage. Clear the aisles because here she is, ladies and gentlemen, the queen of rock and roll, Debbie Harry. Yeah! And she, you know, she was beautiful, obviously. Debbie Harry's a beautiful woman. Normal band. Uh, but she also, you know, there's something a little off about her. Well, what's normal about a band, anyway? This kind of two-tone bleached hair, and 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 also just the fact that this was a woman uh, within the context of 70s, early 80s popular culture in which women were much more demure. There's this woman who is being really aggressive, um, and so that always stuck with me. And uh, and so I always say that the Muppets were my first introduction to, to punk, but. Yeah, it was uh, a few years later, about eight or nine years later, when I got to see Lou Reed in concert, and after the show, I got to meet him and interview him. In your book, you talk about having your magic Sharpie uh, and uh, a, a gaggle of, of LPs uh, associated yeah. with, with the genre, and certainly with the Village Underground. Uh, was that an immediate entree to whisk you backstage? How, how did that come about? Yeah, the, my magic sharpie turned into a kind of talisman for me. I was a record store clerk in high school, and I was obsessed with music and alternative music, punk music, and started going to shows. And I, I found that if you worked it, you could eventually meet the, the people you saw. So, you know, I used my magic sharpie to, you know, bring myself into Iggy Pop's presence, for instance. Did you see him when he smeared peanut butter all over himself? No, that was back in the 70s, but oh, okay. it was still a great performance. And and uh, and then a bunch of other groups that I got to meet, and then I just started bringing my magic Sharpie with me because it would allow me entry into these worlds. And, and so I brought that with me to the Richmond concert that was at a theater in Richmond in 1989, and all I had was tickets to the show. I didn't have backstage passes. But I was just confident I would get to meet him because I had my magic Sharpie. And and then sure enough, there's this woman who is sitting in front of me uh, with about five kids, uh, you know, probably between the ages of 10 and 15, handing out backstage passes to these kids. And I was 18 and really obnoxious, and I just leaned over and said, oh, you wouldn't happen to have an extra one of those, would you? And she counted passes and counted the heads and said, oh, I do, actually. Here you go. Well, <laughs> so how, how, how fortuitous. Let's get right into controversy. All right, here's the question. Where did punk originate? There are those that will say unabashedly, it's New York, it was the village, it was Soho. And then there are those in London who say, no, we have a Soho too. What's your say on this? Mm. Well, punk punk music, what got called punk, uh, emerged basically around the same time, uh, 75, 76, 77. That's when they were really exploding in both New York City and London. And there were very different social contexts. So, you know, in, in London and in, in Britain, they were dealing with an enormous amount of economic and political pressures that were kind of fraying the, the fabric of, of society. And, and punk was this much more kind of political statement. Yes, I um, remember. It was quite aggressive. Nevertheless, even in uh, the British version of punk, there are a lot of really important, notable women who were at the front of the punk movement, from Susie Sue to, you know, polystyrene from the X-ray specs. And the inclusion of women was also something that occurred in New York City. New York City was, I guess you could call, a much more artsy scene. And the thing that was driving it wasn't kind of the politics and just the politics of revolt. Uh, It was uh, much more of a kind of to 
caricature it, I guess, uh, much more artsy movement. So that's the differences between those two, New York and, and London. Well, many people came to know him as Buster Poindexter, but David Johansson in his original incarnation with the New York Dolls um, preceded a lot of what was happening in London, some some will say. Uh, but you also had other people on the, on the fringe, uh, you certainly had the Ramones. So if you were going to give a trophy to one or the other, okay, I'm going to put you on the spot here. It's London or it's New York. Who do you, who do you think was the, the real genesis of it? Punk, as uh, we know. I, I, I would say New York City. And the reason why is because, and this is what I, I try and do in the book, is that uh, the roots of punk don't just go back to the early 70s with the New York Dolls, which was this raucous band of men who dressed as women, heterosexual men who dressed as women. And they were basically, they're, they're credited with kind of inspiring everyone from the Ramones and Richard Hell, the, the early punk band television, Blondie, uh, all of the people who were part of the original New York punk movement uh, attended those New York doll shows. But uh, what my book tries to do is uh, show that it doesn't even just start with the New York Dolls, which is often where punk histories begin. Um, because the Dolls and their kind of rebellion, rebellion against like social norms, they were dressing as women. Um, and all they were doing was basically imitating what was going on and what had been going on around them for a previous decade or two. So basically, the book traces the roots of punk all the way back to this this really obscure theater movement known as Off Off Broadway. Which came first? I mean, you know, we have Wayne County on the scene. Uh, mm-hmm. We have eventually, you know, Divine, and then through that comes John Waters. Uh, what would you say was, was the genesis of certainly the, the dressing cross-gender, dressing uh, flash style? Yeah, so Wayne County and, and the others that you mentioned uh, along with the New York Dolls, all of them were inspired by what I was just referring to, this fairly obscure theater movement that started in the late 50s, known as Off-Off-Broadway. And so everything that punk gets credited with, you know, the idea of doing it yourself and, you know, occupying, like, empty storefront and turning it into uh, a concert venue, or uh, breaking down the barriers between audience and performer, um, and, and all sorts of other things, all that stuff originated with uh, underground theater. And so people like Wayne County, who was, who's basically the first transgender rocker, along with Patti Smith, they all began in Off-Off-Broadway. Before Patti Smith even began performing her poetry, which was preceded performing her music, she was in underground theater productions and absorbing ideas from that whole scene. So that's why I say, really, you, tr- you can trace the roots of punk back to New York City because you don't just start with New York Dolls, who, you know, flew across the Atlantic and inspired the Sex Pistols and a number of British bands. You actually have to go back further to um, off-off-Broadway theater or the underground theater movement because that basically created the template for everything we associate with punk, including like this really kind of aggressive or transgressive uh, approach to, you know, shocking people. Well, there were two cities, in my estimation, that uh, were the bastion and, and, if you will, last fortress of the Beats and the Beatniks. One would be San Francisco, a city I'm very familiar with, and the other one certainly would be New York City. As the Beatniks gave way, or the Beats gave way, 
to the folk scene. You suddenly had Circa 61, 62, Bob Dylan coming on the scene, Café Wa. Uh, what was your take on that movement and how it was able to prosper? Yeah, so uh, the, the the folk music movement that Bob Dylan was a part of, as well as Polymodal Rounders, a more obscure folk band that's really great. I highly recommend them, and I, I write about them in the book. That, that scene... Um, percolated, uh, no pun intended, in coffee shops. And it, it was also that same coffee shop scene that also incubated the underground theater or off-off-Broadway movement. So really, one of the things that I discovered in doing the interviews for this book, doing the archival research for this book, is that there was a lot of crossover between all these different scenes, that it wasn't as if like folk music is happening over, over here in one place, Underground theaters happening in another place, the like the DIY uh, poetry magazine movement published with Mimeo copiers was happening in another place. No, they were actually all happening in the same kinds of places in the exact same neighborhoods, and people were getting ideas off of each other, uh, and it sort of it all helped snowball into this this flowering cultural expression that included punk rock. If you're just joining us, this program is Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Kembru McLeod, a doctor himself and university professor. He has written the book Downtown Pop Underground, and it is a marvelous read. Uh, I was handed this by a good friend. I thought, okay, well, I'll, I'll take a look at it, and I could not put it down last night, and I will continue to look at it and finish it this weekend. Why? Because it's a marvelous read and the way it's constructed. It is uh, over 361 pages, and the most astonishingly wonderful thing and thoughtful thing on the part of Mr. Uh, McLeod, Dr. McLeod, is that he uh, enlisted the aid of Anna Nakowski, who was able to create customized maps. Now, there's a little bit of snootiness. Would you agree with this um, sometimes with people who are New Yorkers, where they talk about uptown and downtown, and the east side and the west side and that side and the other side, and everyone's 38 and this and what? And they say it with such uh, bravado and confidence that they sometimes may even know that the uninitiated don't know where on earth they're talking about. And so the average person says, where in Helsinki is that? Well, you provide the answer because there are Midtown Manhattan maps, there's the West Village maps, there's the East Village maps. And I just want to thank you. I do know Manhattan to some degree, but I'm by far nowhere near an expert. But this is such a great supplement, which I might add, I have never seen put in a book addressing anything about New York uh, to this capacity and this degree. What, what, what inspired you to have such brains to do that? What inspired me was just simply, I wish I had the maps that I eventually had uh, on a create. You basically have a self-contained tour guide here. It's marvelous. Continue. Yeah. I, I wish I had them as a guide when I was doing my original interviews with people where someone would say, oh, such and such was right around the corner from such and such place. And so I basically started compiling addresses and trying to fact-check addresses from old archival sources. And, um, and it not only snowballed into these beautiful maps that are provided um, to the readers of the book, but also anyone can access a version of those maps in the book's website, which is the downtownpopunderground.com. You have to add you have to make sure you include the article, the uh, downtownpopunderground.com, and and that's actually an interactive map that takes uh, anyone who goes to the website uh, on the same kind of tour, but 
instead of just looking on the page at this map, as you would in the book, you can click on, uh, you know, Café Wa, and then you can read excerpts from the book of all the sort of different sorts of stuff that happened at Café Wa, and you could see, oh, Café Wa is just right across the street from Café Bazaar, which which is where the Velvet Underground famously were fired for being too dissonant, being too loud and crazy. I highly encourage uh, listeners who don't have access to the book right now to just go to the website and you can basically spend hours on it. This is Watching America. We'll be right back. Like to take a cement fix Bigger standing cinema Dress my friends up just for show See them as they really are But the people in my brain Two new pens to have a go I'd like to be a gallery Put you all inside my show Andy Warhol looks a scream Hang him on my wall Andy Warhol silver scream Can't tell them apart at all This is Watching America from WHRV. Let's talk about Andy. Andy Warhol, of course, and the factory... Um, how did he decide to, to locate, if you will, in that area? I mean, why, why not somewhere else? I mean, he's originally from Pittsburgh. New York is where it happens. Why did he decide on the village? Well, he moved, he moved to New York City and became a very successful illustrator during the 1950s. Um, but he was only known within illustrator circles. He wasn't the famous Andy Warhol by that point. Um, and he began to enter the, the fine art world in the early 60s with his paintings of Campbell's soup cans, which then transitioned him into other uh, more mechanical modes of reproduction, specifically silk screens. So the famous Maryland prints that most people have seen, that, that particular style of Andy Warhol, that was created on silk screen machines, and he he basically had to hire a poet who also had experience with making silk screens uh, as his assistant as his career began to take off, Gerard Malanga. And he was a part of that underground poetry scene and basically started plugging Andy into that whole world, which was all about making, uh, not waiting for like poetry journals to eventually publish your, your piece. No, you can take a mimeograph machine, do it yourself. As sort of like Andy Warhol was doing with his silk screens, and just make it. So uh, Andy was always surrounding himself with people from different scenes, like the poetry world, uh, Gerard Malanga, who later he became a dancer with the Velvet Underground, and he would, you know, be wielding a whip during Velvet Underground performances. And that gets me into the whole multimedia scene that Andy was a part of, because Andy. But, you know, didn't just simply dabble in visual media, uh, silk screening. He did a bit of everything, uh, especially uh, underground film, but also multimedia performances. Including Empire State Building being shot for 24 hours. Exactly, yeah. And 
And the, the, the actual performances that I'm talking about, they were called the Exploding Plastic Inevitable. And the reason why he hired uh, or became associated with Lou Reed's The Velvet Underground was because he wanted a backing band to basically play crazy music while he and his assistants showed multiple movie projections on the same screen and, and the colored psychedelic lights and so on. And so Basically, just to sum up, like Andy Warhol never sat still. He started as an illustrator, but very quickly moved into the world of fine art with his paintings and then silk screens. But then he was restless and moved on to underground film uh, and multimedia performances. And all this was enabled by the fact that, yeah, he was hanging out in the village. He was hanging out downtown and, and meeting all these interesting people. He was beloved and admired, but some people would attribute the characteristics of a puppet master to him in that he had um, those who were subservient and those who were quite dependent and in some cases, as you allude to in your book, financially desperate. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, there's there's definitely a dark side of that whole uh, Andy Warhol factory scene. And it, you know, it's, Edie it's said definitely which, true. You know? Yeah, it's, it's definitely true that there are a lot of casualties um, that came out of that era. Uh, including Eddie Sedgwick, um, yeah. who is one of the, the early superstar, quote-unquote superstars, that was uh, Andy Warhol's term, who you know starred in his early underground film. June 3rd, 1968, is an ominous day in his life. Uh, we have Valerie Salonis, who shoots him with a thirty-eight caliber gun. Why? Uh, for some of the same reasons we were alluding to earlier. You know... A lot of people considered him to be exploitative, that he was basically taking advantage of a lot of these quote-unquote crazy people um, and getting them to do crazy things. Um, And Valerie Solanus was a a radical feminist lesbian who was also part of the underground mimeo scene. She created her own uh, publication that she sold at downtown bookstores. So it's not as if she came out of nowhere. She was on the scene, basically. She was she was remembered by a lot of people as a, a kind of disturbing character. So she clearly had um, issues happening that uh, contributed to the fact that she uh, tried to murder Andy Warhol. She basically, yeah, she was hanging around the factory. Andy Warhol decided to put her in a couple of his films. But what really kind of the straw that broke the camel's back, basically, for her was the fact that she asked him to produce an underground, off-off-Broadway theater uh, production. Or She had written a play, and she wanted him his connections to the off-off-Broadway scene to allow her to stage the show. And he basically led her on, and she got increasingly agitated until, yeah, that one day when she uh, walked up to the factory and, and, and shot him. In 1971, David Bowie came to the United States for the first time, and he actually visited Andy Warhol at the factory. And uh, he came away a bit dismayed, I've read elsewhere, because Andy wasn't particularly friendly, uh, nor did he seem particularly engaged with uh, Mr. Bowie, or Jones, as his actual name was at the time. And um, yet, David Bowie seemed to continue to idolize uh, Andy Warhol. Continuing to look at an examination of Downtown Pop Underground, written by my guest, Kemberu McLeod, a wonderful book, I might add, and as I've already alluded to, complete with excellent maps, which moreover can be found on his website uh, by the title, the same, same title as the book, The Downtown Pop Underground 
www.ghostmapsmap.com and you'll be able to click on various maps and find out where it all happened. Uh, the next thing I'd like to get into is just various personalities who are intriguing. Tell us about Shirley Clark. Oh, yeah. Uh, Shirley Clark was uh, originally a dancer who uh, who's bohemian, who uh, by the 1950s decided to pick up a wedding gift that someone gave her, which was a movie camera, and decided to become a filmmaker. And she, too, was part of this downtown underground scene, and she's a perfect example of the ways that a lot of these artists during this time in the 50s and 60s and 70s straddled multiple art forms. So she started out as a dancer, but she moved into film, um, and she found ways of kind of merging her interest in dance and movement in the filmmaking process and the editing process. She directed a, a number of amazing films. An adaptation of the off-off-Broadway play, The Connection, was her first one, uh, followed by The Cool World, um, which was really the first film that was basically shot from the narrative perspective of an African-American um, and it was shot in, in Harlem. And then what makes her interesting is she was also restless, and so she was constantly moving into new scenes and, and new art forms and attracted to new technologies. And she, uh, in the late 60s, she picked up this thing, this newfangled technology called the video camera. And she became one of the pioneers of video art and video making. She knew Andy Warhol. Andy Warhol would hang out at her apartment. Basically, through one or two degrees of separation, almost everyone that I, I talk about in the book. But one of the reasons why I decided to feature her is because she often gets written out of film history and and isn't like a, a, a well-known filmmaker, even though I, I believe that she should be much more well-known. And, and that's one of the reasons why I focused on her. But the main reason is because she is, you know, one of the key nodes in that scene. She's connected to all these different people in that downtown social network. In March of 1968, Bill Graham, the rock promoter, not to be confused, obviously, with the evangelist with a similar name, but Bill Graham, the rock promoter, opened the Fillmore East. And that kind of changed the, well, if you will, the, the, the mood of the neighborhood because you had kids coming in from suddenly from the suburbs to see shows who would be, if you will, weekender hangouts, and then they would return. Tell me about the dichotomy of the different populace, the people who were constantly in the village versus those who would just flirt with the village, particularly in the form of going to places like the Fillmore East. Yeah, well, uh, I mean, Fillmore East debuted in 1968, later in the 60s, but the same dynamic uh, what, uh, happened in the early 60s with Greenwich Village and the folk scene, the coffee house scene. Uh, they would attract basically tourists. Um, tourists who would come in basically on the, the weekend. They were, uh, in the later 60s, they were called weekend hippies. And, um, yeah, I, I think they were basically drawn to those scenes just because they were made aware of them through mass media, like uh, a story in Time a time magazine or Life or whatever. And, and so there was, I guess you could say, a, a tension between the people who had basically grown up and or at least lived in the village and lived this kind of bohemian underground life. There's a conflict between them and the people who are basically wearing bohemia as a kind of fashion statement, I guess. Uh, that was certainly true. And also, unfortunately, the convergence of all these people brought in, you know, a lot of bad seeds, drug dealers, people who 
likely did horrible things to women, uh, young girls, and who are predators. And so there was certainly a, a dark side to not just the Andy Warhol scene, but the the entire downtown scene. Which isn't to you know say that there wasn't something of value that came out of it. I'm just also. I can't help but uh, be the kind of cautionary father figure to to point out the fact that uh, with freedom also comes, well, unfortunately, predators as well. As every sociologist is aware, there is mainline culture and then there's subculture, sometimes called paraculture. And one way or another, it has a way of seeping into mainline culture, as um, vis-a-vis your example with uh, Debbie Harry on, on The Muppets and then later encountering Lou Reed. But it happened in a spectacular way, or at least a large-scale way, back in the 1970s with the first reality TV series, which I remember. It was done by PBS, and it was called An American Family. And it consisted of just that, an American family, mom, dad, brothers and sisters, siblings, but with one particular child, and his name was Lance Loud. And he would go on to be sort of, if you will, an entree to middle America, getting some insight to a different as some would consider even subversive world, as you put it, uh, an acolyte of Andy Warhol. Would you like to tell us a story about Lance Loud, please? Yeah, Lance Loud. Uh, he was from Santa Barbara, California, and that's where most of the, of the original series, An American Family, was shot in Santa Barbara, California. But what a lot of people forget about that uh, show is that a significant part takes place in, in New York City. So I think it's on episode two, He's living in the, the infamous Chelsea Hotel, this decrepit hotel where later on, <laughs> vicious, you know, yeah, allegedly know killed yeah. his girlfriend, Nancy. And, you know, Leonard Cohen, and Janis Joplin. Long, yeah, it has a long storied history of bohemian poets and countercultural figures living there. It's a residential hotel, basically. Right. So Lance Loud was living there, and the cameras were on when his mom visited him for the first time, Pat Loud was her name. And with the name, the Chelsea Hotel, she imagined like this place with a, you know, nurturing woman at the desk who would bring, you know, hot toddies to her son. and Nice awnings and, and, and interior yeah. square gardens. No, yeah. no, no, no. <laughs> I know, I know and, it's a dump. Me, but that's what she realized, <laughs> yeah. Pat Loud realized. And the cameras catch her expression sort of processing all this, not just processing the kind of decrepit hotel, but the people that Lance Loud introduced her to um, people like Holly Woodlawn, who actually um, is name-checked in Lou Reed's song, Walk on the Wild Side, mm. the opening line. Right. Uh, uh, Holly uh, came from Miami, FLA. Yeah, uh, hitchhiked her way across the USA, which actually went through. She took the bus. And Lance Loud introduces this transsexual woman, Holly Woodlawn, to his mom, Pat Loud, who's, you know, the, it's the first time she's encountered this entire world. Uh, she she very quickly very quickly embraces that world and is quite supportive of her son even if she doesn't fully understand it and and when the show aired Lance Loud became the kind of poster child for the homosexual moral decay that's happening in America and she was the first to jump to his defense she's an amazing woman she's still alive I think she's 93 and I actually saw her when I was in Los Angeles last month and uh, and it's, oh by the way she likes the book. <laughs> She really oh, liked the book. Well, like a, well, who a wouldn't like the book? I mean, uh, I, th- th- this book is truly a fantastic read. 
the whole construction is superb, and um, I didn't find that there was any un- unnecessary verbiage or a waste of my attention at all. I thoroughly have enjoyed it, and will, as I say, continue this weekend to finish it. That's how much I hold it of value. I have a question for you about the actual writing of the book. When you go into the field, so to speak, uh, that you're not familiar with, you usually need uh, a cohort, somebody who is a, uh, if you will, a source of entry to that world. Who was the key person who really introduced you to everybody else, and, and how did you make contact with them? Uh, it was a woman named Lisa Jane Persky. Lisa Jane Persky grew up on 87 Christopher Street, which was a building in the 1960s where Yoko Ono, before she met John Lennon, was mm-hmm. the superintendent with her then-husband, Tony Cox. So Lisa was a little girl who grew up in the village, um, and she then, as a teenager and a woman in her 20s, became a performer in the off-off-Broadway scene. She later left New York in, I think, 1977, moved to Los Angeles, went on to have a quite successful career in Hollywood with uh, memorable uh, like supporting roles in When Harry Met Sally, The Cotton Club, The Big Easy, and, and movies like that. So she kind of slipped from the underground to the pop in that sense. I had known Lisa through a few different friends, and I knew also her name through punk history because she was one of the writers and photographers for one of the first punk magazines, The New York Rocker, uh, which debuted in 1976. Of all the people you interviewed, did you encounter any who were bitter about not having succeeded? I mean, we, we, we do have those who obviously, you know, came to the top of the surface and were accepted broadly and widely, uh, as already aforementioned, Lou Reed, Debbie Harry, etc. What about those who still remained in the shadows and thought perhaps that they, they merited greater favor and attention than they got? Was there any bitterness or sadness that you encountered in some of the interviews? I actually never encountered any bitterness or sadness. There might have been some sour grapes about one person or the other. But I think a lot of the people who didn't go on to greater acclaim, uh, who came out of the same scene that Debbie Hare and Patti Smith and so on came out of, I think they're quite accepting of their position. There's there's just something really special about a lot of the people that I interviewed, many of whom are just not household names, but who lived really incredible lives, and they decided to live lives the way they wanted to live it rather than the way society told them to live it. And so in the interviews, I did not feel like they had any major regrets or bitterness, at least the ones that I spoke with. And I spoke with well over 100 people and had uh, over a million words of transcribed <laughs> interviews that I accumulated. And and I think that really says something about that scene, that it was this really optimistic scene. They really felt like they were changing the world. And and in retrospect, you know, 50 years later, a lot of these same people who I interviewed uh, or people who came to some of the events that I had with my book launch in New York City, a couple different events there, I got to see a lot of the people from the book there. Uh, they don't have sour grapes. They're, they're just these, these kind of wonderful, unique people who believed that they were changing the world, and they did, in fact, change the world through these small gestures that slowly got amplified through mass media that kind of planted the seeds in the minds of people from middle America that, oh, maybe there's a weirder world out there that we could we can find. Returning quickly to This American Family, the first reality TV show with the openly gay son, Lance Loud, um, you know, he introduces his mom to Hollywood Lawn, this transsexual woman, and that's the first time that 
someone like that was ever seen on national television uh, before. And, and I, that's what I mean by planting the seeds in the minds of people like across the country. So even though, you know, Holly Woodlawn, she sadly died of, of brain cancer uh, about three or four years ago, uh, she, by all accounts, people who did know her, uh, she was just this wonderfully bubbly woman who didn't have regrets. This is Watching America. We'll be right back. Holly came from Miami, FLA. Hitchhiked away across USA. Plucked her eyebrows on the way. Shaved her legs and then he was a she. She says, hey babe, take a walk on the wild side. Said, hey honey, take a walk on the wild side. Everybody's darling. This program is Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Kembru McLeod. He has written the book Downtown Pop Underground. Give me the clear, if one can define it, cultural divide between the East Village versus the West Village for those who are unfamiliar. Yeah. So uh, the beat scene, the the the. The, the folk scene emerged in the late 50s and the early 60s in what's known as Greenwich Village or the West Village. Um, but even back then, people were complaining about rent. And even back then, you know, uh, they were saying that the West Village was too bourgeois. And so over the course of the 1960s, people started moving east, uh, you know, across the island of Manhattan to basically slummier areas that were populated by a variety of people of different ethnicities, as well as artists of all kinds. And they were drawn there. People like Allen Ginsberg lived in the East Village. They were all drawn there uh, largely because of the, the cheaper rents. But not just that. They were also drawn there because that's where everyone else is gravitating. So over the course of the 1960s, there was this kind of countercultural shift of center of gravity from the, the West to the East side. And also, you know, by the 1970s, people in search of cheaper rent started going down south below East Village and the West Village. Uh, and directly... Down to the Battery or, or whereabouts? Uh, yeah, well, I was about to talk about Soho. So underneath Greenwich Village, um, Greenwich Village's southern border mm-hmm. is, is considered Houston Street. And so Soho, the, the neighborhood name Soho, is an abbreviation of South of Houston. Um, and so Soho was this uh, primarily a, a, an old factory district with old cast iron buildings where a lot of artists began to move. Because, and put their lofts. Exactly, because they could both live in the lofts and they had a studio in the loft and that saved them money as well. And on top of that, you know, a lot of these massive, massive lofts were incredibly cheap at the time. Now it's one of the most, you know... Let me back uh, up a little bit. Just one one question that intrigues Mm me. Uh, New York City is obviously a city of ethnic waves of generations that come in and come and go. Uh, What was the ethnicity origin of Greenwich Village? 
Well, there are a lot of Italians who, who lived in Greenwich Village uh, and Jewish people. So was there, I, I, was there resentment I, to the Bohemians when they started to move oh, in? Yeah. Yeah. Yes, um, yeah. Uh, so the Italians basically hated the coffeehouse scene. They hated the fact that, you know, all these tourists were coming in on weekends and making too much noise and keeping them up. And they also hated these weirdos who were invading their neighborhood. And so there was a lot of animosity um, between the Italians. And that, that came up a lot, actually in my interviews, this animosity between the Italians and, and the Bohemians, who might get like chased down because they looked too openly gay, or, or they're hanging out with a black person or, or something like that. Let's talk about Divine. Um, we, we just very briefly alluded to her, but I mean, I'd like to go further into the story of Divine. She was starting to go mainline uh, before she died. She was, she was actually on the brink of breaking out in sitcoms, uh, when of course she tragically passed away. John Waters worked with her extensively. Uh, some people would say he overly used her. Uh, what's your take on, on the divine, if you will, legacy and influence in certainly drag culture uh, going wide? Yeah, so divine. I mean, everyone that knew divine uh, never considered divine or divine never considered himself a transsexual. Uh, he was a man who, a gay man, who liked to dress outrageously in crazy women's clothes. And, yeah, Divine was the star of a lot of John Waters films. But so he, people... he would be the operative term to use versus she? Yeah. yeah. Okay, uh, just want to make sure. Based, based on uh, those who, who knew Divine. You've just from, spared uh, me many I, I, letters. Thank you. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, I interviewed John Waters, so he said that, as well as Lisa Jane Persky, who I mentioned earlier. Uh, she was in a play with Divine. And uh, one of the things that people don't know about Divine, that most people only know of Divine through John uh, Waters films, um, like Hairspray, for instance. But uh, Divine was in a lot of uh, underground theater productions also, and was part of that whole scene. So Divine is from Baltimore, just like John Waters was. But also, just like John Waters, Divine would go up to New York City and hang out and absorb ideas and, and also get a lot of work. So when Divine wasn't in the John Waters movie productions, Divine was in, for instance, uh, an early Tom Ion play uh, named Women Behind Bars. Now, Tom Ion is the person who co-wrote Dream Girls, went on to much greater success um, with shows like Dream Girls and, and other shows. But back then, uh, Tom Ion was part of the off-off-Broadway scene and wrote these crazy plays, and Divine was in this satire of 50s women prison movies called Women Behind Bars that starred Divine and Lisa Jane Persky was one of the main characters who Divine would torture. And so Divine is part of, you know, even the Divine's from Baltimore and associated with those oh, John Waters Baltimore films, Divine spent a lot of time in New York City and, and, uh, and basically was certainly part of that scene as well. What about Hibiscus? Yeah, so Hibiscus. Hibiscus is what an amazing story. So <clears throat> Hibiscus is the stage name of George Harris III, who was basically part of a large extended family, or just this large family. I, I refer to them in the book as kind of like uh, the Brady Bunch on acid or an avant-garde <laughs> Brady Bunch, because they, um, it, it, was two, it was three boys three girls, just yes. like in the Brady Bunch. Yeah. And at the time, when they were all very young kids, they were living in a small town in Florida, 
And they slowly developed the idea, sort of led by the oldest brother, George Harris III, later known as Hibiscus. They, they had this idea to move to New York and break into show business. And that's exactly what they did. And they didn't have any, like, they weren't in any big films or anything like that. Instead, they became stars of the underground theater scene, that same scene that I've been talking about for over the past hour. And uh, so Hibiscus was involved in that scene, came of age in that scene, and then he left uh, around the age of 16, 17 to go to San Francisco. And he formed this really important dra psychedelic drag group known as the Coquettes. And the Coquettes were basically uh, composed of both men and women who, you know, the, the men would often be bearded, uh, but in women's clothes with sparkles in their beards. And so they were really the forefront of gender nonconformity and, and blurring the lines between genders. And, and so Hibiscus was out there in San Francisco where he formed the Coquettes in the late 60s and early 70s. But he very quickly returned to his very supportive family, including his mom and dad, who uh, he would collaborate with. So his mom would write songs for him for these crazy productions that he would do um, in the New York troupe that he formed when he moved back called The Angels of Light. So it was his three little sisters, his mom and himself, along with a kind of famous drag queens like Marsha P. Johnson and many others, who uh, performed in these really outrageous productions. And, and it's, you know, I, I can't really point to another example of a family like that, one that was just so adventurous and so supportive of each other, and, and a family that really did kind of help change the world. I mean, they, they planted the seeds for basically the sorts of changes that we've seen over the past two decades that with regard to the ways that we understand sexuality now. It all basically started with people like Hibiscus. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Alan Campbell, and my special guest is Kembrew McLeod, who has written a very enthralling book, an examination of basically Manhattan, in particular uh, the East and West Village, and the art movements. The title of the book is The Downtown Pop Underground. The question I have for you, Kembrew, is, you know, people living these avant-garde lifestyles and uh, pushing the limit and being on the edge of the envelope, etc., 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 they have to make money, and they get older. So how many of these people wound up working either in banks or grocery stores? That's what I want to know. Right. There, there's a website that's sort of like the Onion satire website, and it's called Hard Times. Mm. And they recently ran a, a satirical article with the headline, um, Punk Choose Your Own Adventure Story Always Ends in a 9-to-5 Office Job. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. So uh, that was true. Uh, well, back then in the 60s, uh, you could live in New York, and uh, the rent was cheap enough that uh, you could just do the occasional pickup work, uh, odd job, and be able to, you know, eat and pay your rent. But, um, yeah, a lot of the people that I've interviewed, many of them are still in rent-controlled apartments, and they're still kind of clinging on to uh, these these apartments that they lived in when they were in their 20s and but did, 30s. Did any of them move away, and are they now working in Target? I mean, you know, I, I just... Yeah, the, a lot of them. A lot of them actually stayed in New York City. It was you who invoked the term, and I'm going to now build upon this: the Onion, because I read a piece about you, which I thought initially, surely this must be from the Onion, but it actually is true. It's from the Guardian, and moreover, it's been also listed and written up in the Boston Herald. 
As a public service, I need to inform the public listening to this program right now about the kind of man who we've been listening to and his nature. He is a man willing to literally sell his soul to anybody. You see, on March the 23rd of 2000, there was an article that was placed in The Guardian of all places, and this is how it read. Kembrew MacLeod, a researcher at the University of Massachusetts, this week successfully sold his soul. According to the Boston Herald, MacLeod posted his soul as an item for sale on the internet auction site eBay some months ago. 30 potential buyers slugged it out until the price reached a tidy $1,325. And for that, the lucky winner of the auction received a four-ounce jar labelled Cambrew's Soul, plus a deed of ownership. The reason I've been selling my soul is to make money, the now soul-free MacLeod told the paper. In America, you can metaphorically or literally sell your soul and be rewarded for it. That's what makes this country great. The new owner of the soul prefers to remain anonymous, but has revealed one telling detail about his life, his occupation. In the absence of the devil picking up his soul at auction, Kembrew MacLeod can be assured that he now has his soul in the hands of the purchaser of New York real estate, a New York real estate agent. Could the name possibly have been Donald Trump? Sadly, no. Oh. I actually know the person who uh, remained anonymous. and uh, You could sell your hope. You could sell your will. I mean, this is an industry. I love what you're doing. Yeah. I, uh, I, I learned everything about pranking from the downtown pup underground. Uh, those people, ah, you know, So it's, it's performance art for you. It's performance yes, art for you, it's isn't it? performance art. Yeah. yeah that, that's what it is. I yeah. get it. I, I get it. I've also, been, I've also been known as a robo-professor, and I sometimes... Because I, I live in Iowa, uh, where it's uh, every four years, politicians come down on our little town of Iowa City. Mm-hmm. And so it becomes really easy to take to task um, politicians from either Bill Clinton or uh, Michelle Bachman uh, and take them to task in robot outfits that I wear. Because I feel like if you're going to protest, it's much more memorable if you're dressed as a robot. And so after my first action, in which I interrupted Bill Clinton's speech in 2008 when he was stumping for Hillary, the, the Des Moines Register ran the headline, Robo Professor Heckles Clinton. And so I appropriated <laughs> Robo Professor as my alter ego name. And so, yeah, that's my other performance. You're also a reverend. Tell, tell me about your, oh, your, yeah. your reverend persona. That was about 20 years ago, but I went by the name Reverend Eleven. And my middle name that I, that I chose, yes. uh, because I was born without a middle name, my mm-hmm. middle name that I chose when I was, turned 18 was Eleven. Has Reverend yeah, Eleven been defrocked? Uh, no, uh, I still... I still still have a, a card from the Ministry of Salvation Incorporated in Chula Vista, California. Right. So I'm still was that nineteen ninety five? Did that cost? <laughs> I, th- I think it was as cheap as $5. All right, good. Well, you, you saved considerably there. Kembrew, you've been a delightful guest. We've been speaking here on Watching America to Kembrew McLeod, and he is the author of an excellent book called The Downtown Pop Underground, and it is a fantastic read. It's an uh, enthralling read. It's an easy read, which means it was hard writing. Thorough, completely thorough. This is not just somebody, you know, just putting their toe in the in the low end of the water here. He went in deep with this subject thoroughly. He took 19 months exclusively of his life, 
every day dedicated to writing it, and it shows in the quality of this work. Moreover, as I've indicated, it has excellent maps which um, will not leave you forlorn, lonely, not being able to figure out where he's talking about various neighborhoods uh, because he actually gives you with precision indications of where to go, where to find the locations, and so on and so forth. It's also available at his website, as he has mentioned. What is that website again, please, Kembro? The website is thedowntownpopunderground.com. TheDowntownPopUnderground.com. You've been a pleasure, and I want to thank you so very, very much for spending this uh, valuable time with us. We were very, very grateful, and I look forward to hearing what you're going to do next. What's your next book going to be? I can't tell you, because, uh, but I will say that it's a spin-off of this book. It comes out of this book, but it's secret right now. And I've just got to tag on one more question here. A lot of this sounds nostalgic, because it is. It's from the past. Do you think there will be any new movements coming out of the village that will equal or rival what has happened in the past, in the future? Uh, perhaps only in 50 to 100 years after there might be an economic collapse and it becomes livable for artists again. But it's not livable for artists now, and so no, I don't see the same thing happening uh, in the future uh, that happened in the 60s and 70s in the village. Well, on that cheery note, thank you very much, Kembrough. You've been listening to Watching America. Our guest has been Kembrough McLeod, the author of The Downtown Pop Underground. Watching America is made possible in part by the kind and thoughtful contributions of listeners like you. Our theme music for Watching America is provided by Razorlight. Many thanks to our sound engineer, Todd Washburn, producer extraordinaire, Paul Bebo, Senior producer and recording editor, Gina Gamboni. Executive producer, Chuck Dowd. Chief of content, Heather Mazzoni. And CEO, Bert Schmidt. I am watching America's creator and host, Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia. This is Andy Warhol, and it's take one. No, take one. It's, it's Warhol, actually.